accelerating to a better future and insight into innovation at Imperial. Welcome to this edition of Accelerating to a Better Future, celebrating the work of the Accelerator Programme at Imperial College London, with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Richard Templer. Richard, hi, how are you doing? I'm good. It's a bit early in the morning for both of us, though, I think. <laughs> Only squeeze us in to their very busy schedules at unearthly times. <laughs> But we mustn't be rude to our guests before we've even introduced him. Um, when you set up the Accelerator Programme, did you ever dream its graduates would have such a profound effect on how we view solutions to climate change? I mean, you've seen amazing people through the series, haven't you? Yeah, it's, 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 it's one of these things, you know, it's, 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 uh, for anybody who's ever written a grant proposal or made a proposition within their company to a group of people, you know, you often you'll say things... Um, which in your wildest dreams, you think, well, you know, I've got to say this because people will, they'll really, they'll give me the money if I, if I say it this way. But you, you sort of think like, oh, God, I, when you get the money, you think, oh, my God, I hope this actually happens. And, um, but there's a part of you that thinks it never will. And actually, it was quite the reverse. Here, that I, I made claims which, looking back at it, were entirely conservative. <laughs> I had no idea that there was all this pent-up creativity and um, drive and ambition out there that people really wanted to do something about climate change. There was more than talk about it or protest about it. It was do things about it. And um, yes, our, our today's guest was, was, was one, of the, one of the people that joined our happy crew for whom it was clear that you know, doing something in the real world was an important thing to him. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, he's fascinating because he's not only had a spin out from Imperial, he's had a spin in at Oxford University. And yeah. it's great to have Tim Kruger, the founder and now CTO of Origin Power and James Martin Fellow, Oxford University with us today. So, Tim, hello and welcome. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Richard. How are you both doing? Good, Good thank right. you. <laughs> not too early for you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but let's let's just brush over that. Really, no. <laughs> probably best if we don't talk about the time. Tim, um, I I obviously like like all good podcast hosts done my research, and I saw your TED talk, so I now know a fraction, just a tiny slither of what it is that you're trying to do at Origin. But but for those people who haven't yet had the benefit of watching the TED talk, and I recommend it, um, can you just give us in in just an essence what what is Origin Power, and what is it that you're seeking to do? with the work that you've been doing over the years, thanks to the Accelerator Programme, in part. Okay, so Origin Power is a company that is developing uh, technologies to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So in order to address climate change, we need to not only reduce emissions very rapidly, and that's essential, we have to do that. But even when we've done that, we're also going to have to take carbon dioxide out of the air at a massive scale. And so what we're doing at Origin is developing the technologies that can enable us to do that in a safe way, in a permanent way, and in a cost-effective way. Well, I have to ask the obvious question then how, because, I mean, we talk about, I mean, when you say talking the, the carbon out, I mean, we've, we hear a lot about carbon capture and storage and things, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. You're talking about something that's a bit more fundamental than just capturing it, aren't you? Yeah. So, so um, I... As I said, we, we need to reduce emissions. And one way that you can reduce emissions is you can capture CO2 
before it gets into the air. And that's what's known as carbon capture and storage. And so there's a lot of work that's going on to strip the CO2 out of flue gases before it gets into the atmosphere. But we need to do more than that. Um, we've already got uh, very high levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, and it's, everyone knows they're going higher than that. So we're actually going to need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, actually take it out of the air and, and securely store it for, forever. And, and so that's, that's a different proposition. Um, it's one thing to take CO2 out of a flue gas where it might be 10% of the flue gas. But in the air, it's much less than that. It's about 25th of a percent. So it's much, much less uh, available uh, in the air. And that ma makes it that much harder to do. Um, when you say yeah. flue gas, is that is that what you is that once power has been created, that's part of the, the kind of output right, of, of the yeah. power generation program? Yeah. Yeah. So, so if, you, if, you, if you have a, a power station uh, which runs on fossil fuel or if you have a refinery or a cement plant or something like that, they will produce CO2 as a waste product. And that goes up through the, the flue, through the chimney, and that en enters the atmosphere. Um, so the best thing to do is to you know use less of the things that create CO2, but if you do create the CO2, is to capture it before it gets into the air. So that's what you do first. But beyond that, you're also going to have to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, and that's where the technology that we're developing comes. So that's CO2 that's occurred for other reasons, and that some of which is just norm absorbed through through trees and through carbon sequestration in other ways. So, so you're saying there's a big problem out here. You know, generating power is one thing, and capture is being thought about. And though I'm always quite bemused as to where you actually put the stuff after you've caught mm -hmm. it, but but you're actually saying there's a bigger job, and we have to extract the carbon that we've been creating for years and years and years and years. So, so how are you how are you doing that? Yeah, it's such so, a tiny percentage of the atmosphere. Okay, so so what you need is a material that will react strongly with the carbon dioxide and lock it up. Um, but that's only part of the cycle. That's, that, that's the first part, grabbing the carbon dioxide. But then once you've grabbed it, you then need to pull the, the carbon dioxide off that material. Um, and then you are generating pure CO2. Um, and that is what you can store permanently. So if you think about it in the atmosphere, 400 roughly parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, that's 0.04%. Um, it, it's like looking for a needle in the haystack. So you need essentially uh, the, the chemical equivalent of a magnet that will um, latch onto that, uh, that CO2. But then once it's latched onto it, you then need to separate it out again. Um, and then you, you produce it pure. So it's like 100% pure. So really what you're doing is you're starting with 0.04% uh, you know, CO2 in the air, and then you're taking it to uh, 100%. And once you've got it as 100%, then you can store it permanently underground. Uh, and and that, that's something that you can do. Where do you put it underground? Because when we talk about underground storage, I think, yeah, okay, do you just dig a very big hole and stuff it in? I mean, this is a gas we're talking about. And how can you make sure it doesn't escape? Okay, so the first thing you do is you compress it. So it, it's very, very compressed. So it's, it, it's, uh, it's like a liquid, it's called a supercritical fluid. And you inject it into suitable formations. And we know there are many of these formations under the ground where gases and liquids can be stored for millions and millions of years. That, that's why we have um, deposits of oil and gases, because you've basically got a, a layer of impermeable rock and you, you've got the, the oil and gas in, in that pocket under the impermeable rock. So one place that you can store uh, CO2 is uh, a disused oil or gas field. So you've, you've already pumped out the oil and gas and you can pump CO2 in there. And when you do pump the CO2 in there, it 
um, starts reacting with the rock and it forms new rock. It forms carbonate rock in the ground. It's solid. It stays there permanently. And so we're confident that this can be done and that CO2 will stay there permanently. But it's not just places where you've got oil and gas, because actually there are relatively few of those. There are also formations under the ground uh, which contain salty water. So old ancient seas that have been capped by uh, this impermeable rock. And these are called saline aquifers, and you can inject CO2 into those as well. And, and when you, you hear people about drilling for oil and they hit, oh, we, we hit a dry, dry well or something like that, basically what they've hit is this pocket of water which isn't worth anything to anyone, but actually it's a good place to store the CO2. And as I say, once you put the CO2 down there, it will react with the rock, it will solidify, and it will stay there permanently. Sounds expensive. Is it expensive? Actually, um, uh, I mean, engineering, uh, yes, it, it, it's a cost, but it's not that expensive. Um, it obviously depends where you're doing it. If you're having to pipe all your CO2 um, hundreds of miles away and then inject it under the seabed, that's going to be more expensive. If you do it on land, it can be a lot cheaper. So you're, you're looking at about 5 to $10 a tonne if you're doing it on land and probably two or three times that amount uh, under the sea. Um, this is where you, it's not just a technical issue, it's a social issue as well, because in, in the States, they already inject CO2 underground and uh, a lot of people there accept it. I think most people in this country wouldn't accept it. And so we're looking uh, in this country at sequestering, that's burying the CO2 under uh, the North Sea. Um, and uh, there's a saying, there's, um, you, you've heard of NIMBY, not in my backyard, there's Numby, not under my backyard. And most people don't like the idea of having pockets of CO2 uh, underneath them. Uh, there's also another one, which is banana, which is built absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. Um, and and, and that, that, that is, that's just amusing. There we go. You're just talking about the whole of the Southeast here. Um, tell me, why wouldn't people want to do this? I mean, it's not dangerous, presumably, and it's not toxic and it doesn't you know it, it once it's done it's done is it because it's the actual drilling is really disruptive or is it because the they're frightened of the technology or they think it you know in their minds it's equated with things like fracking and there's disturbance and seismic yeah I, I, I think i think there is a uh, a fear of the unknown um i think if you look around at society there are all sorts of crazy things that we do which if you were to introduce them now you go well you can't do that what you drive around in a, a thing that weighs a ton made of metal carrying an explosive liquid. Um, oh, you put, that, that's just not possible. And, and yet everyone does. And it's because we're used to it. And, and it, they're not without danger cars. But um, I think that when you um, are looking at this, people say, well, what if it leaks? Very good question. So you, you've got to examine that and you've got to make sure it's done in the right way and it's regulated properly. And I think part of the problem is that people have seen lapses in regulation in the past. Um, and uh, and that's where the concern lies. And so I think there is a, 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 a great deal of logic in doing it. Okay, well, let's do it first in the places where if it were to leak, then it wouldn't be catastrophic. Um, and uh, so I, I think that, you know, it is totally understandable. And I, I think there is a danger of applying too much logic and just saying, uh, well, we know it's safe and therefore you should do it. And, but actually, that's not how people react and behave. They do react in an emotional manner. Um, and even if you do lay out the facts for them, they may not yet be convinced. So I think we've got to respect that. Can I um, actually also say there's, there's another thing, Amanda? Tim and I should, I should explain. 
I don't know how many hours we spent chatting to each other about all these conundrums about about um, being scientists and knowing that we're going to have to do various things about climate change. And some of them we both recognise are very uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable for us as humans. I mean, we understand as scientists that they're going to need to happen. As humans, we might look at it and kind of just hold our heads in our hands, thinking, you know, how did we get to this point? I wish we weren't here. But you can't keep on doing that. You have to actually con confront these things. And you know, one of one of the, the the underlying things that I think you'll hear in the political sphere is is this idea that um, by exploring these kinds of approaches, what you're doing is you're avoiding confronting the what's called the mitigation um, imperative. That is to prevent emissions. And Tim was very careful, and so am I. When we talk about this, say you have got. I mean, and this is this is not political. This is actually entirely scientific. If if we were to not do anything about CO two emissions and the growth in CO two emissions, and simply go, hey guys, we'll just suck it out of the air and stick it down some holes, we wouldn't be able to do it. If you, when when you look at the magnitude of what you'd have to do, is you simply can't do it. So. You know, there, there, there's 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 this there's this feeling amongst uh, some people, which I do understand, that people are exploring this kind of technology, are trying to avoid mitigation, and of course, whenever they see an oil or a gas company supporting uh, a startup doing this kind of work, there's you see, told you, um, and yet the skill set that you require to put things down holes in the ground or have holes in the ground and do those things properly, of course, are all with the oil and gas industry. So these are uncomfortable things and things that um, we as a society, as, as people, we need to talk these things through because we can't afford to not do stuff just because emotionally we get upset about, about it. Because the upset when the when you know global heating takes over will be far greater than the emotional upset of doing something with an oil and gas company in the future or you know doing something with putting some new holes in in, in under the the north sea yeah the problem is often that people are really black and white about this aren't they i mean it's like you know the oil companies are bad and tech startups are good because they're clean and and actually it's so much more nuanced and complicated than that isn't it and we've got we need to work alongside some of the oil companies because they are doing things to mitigate and try and develop new ways of working, you know. Okay. And also, they have huge amounts of funds, so they're able to do some of the, the you know, the, the the big engineering project they, projects that others might not be able to fund. They've got decreasing amounts of funds actually because they're they're because they're, 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 <laughs> they're running out of oil. <laughs> prices have been plummeting, and. But partly because they're looking at, at alternative technologies as well, isn't it? I mean, there's this kind of reaction, but they're, they're saying, you no, know, no, no. We, we, BP's we, looking at, you know, carbon capture and storage and they're transitioning to to, to green power in across parts of, you know, the states from the oil companies. So there's a sense that there's a transition on the way. There are some, some of them are, but the reason their share price is going down is because there's a general recognition that their, their, their business model is a busted flush. Um, mm. I have to say as well, though, you know, they, they're just, you know, the companies are run by people just like us, um, that many of these companies have and continue to fund um, organisations that poo-poo climate change. And those yeah, are things that I think their leadership cannot be forgiven for. That is just wrong. 
and I'll say that until I die. I mean, I think that that was outrageous. Um, but nevertheless, you know, they they have children and grandchildren, and I've talked to some of them, and they are beginning to think like maybe maybe I need to do something about this. So we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. So maybe it's that pincer movement of social need and social responsibility against you know declining your um, share price. They've got to do something. So it's the sweet spot where your 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 value system and your financial drivers overlap. I mean, for some of us, we care less about the financial drivers and more about the value system, but I guess the oil men care about the financial drivers too. What's what's quite interesting in the context of uh, Origin Power, the company uh, that I founded, is that uh, we actually use natural gas to drive the process. So there's this kind of paradox that um, natural gas, which when you burn, it uh, generates uh, carbon dioxide and contributes to global heating, um, we're actually using that to take carbon dioxide out of the air. So normally, if you burn a ton of natural gas, you end up putting about three tons of carbon dioxide into the air. But if you use it in the process that we have at Origin Power, for each ton of natural gas that you use, you're actually removing eight tons of carbon dioxide from the air. And this creates a huge cognitive dissonance, both with the people who are from the oil and gas industry who go, hang on a second, um, you want to use my product, but you're, um, you're trying to fight climate change. And then also with um, what I call the kind of deep green environmentalists who, who look at this and go, but the, the oil and gas industry are, are, are evil and you're doing something that's using their product. And, and really what we're saying is, you know, um, as, as Richard was saying, if, if they are promoting that global heating isn't happening, then yes, I would, would agree that they're, they're evil. But we, we need to actually look at, we need to solve this problem. We need to take carbon dioxide out of the air. Any process that takes carbon dioxide out of the air requires energy. That, that's fundamental. Again, those are laws of physics. Um, so any process that takes carbon dioxide out of the air needs energy. And actually, uh, natural gas is a good form of a good, abundant, cheap form of uh, energy to do that, as long as you make sure that you are not emitting CO2 from the process. And so th- this is this is something that um, is a challenge for us because neither the oil and gas companies who we want to engage with, because this is, as, as Richard said, they have the expertise to, to get rid of the CO2 and the environmentalists who go, but the oil and gas industry are the bad guys. Why are you working with them? Can I, can I, Tim, you've, you keep on dancing around what the actual technology is and what it does. Come on, mate. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask about lime here. Just to pick up on that point, Tim, though, I mean, what you're saying is your process is actually about creating a, a kind of net balance, isn't it? You're, you're reducing, you're taking uh, natural gas, but you're reducing CO2. So, so, yeah. so, so anyone who can work their way through the science. And I have to admit, this is complicated for a non-scientist. Um, mm. I love these pods because I learn so much. But, but if you once you work it through logically, of course, it's a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you do that? Because if this actually reduces the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, it has to be a net gain for all of us. So it's a question of actually making it, I suppose, making the science accessible and clear and making yeah. us understand that we stand to gain significantly, even though it looks like we're using something that's a polluter to start with. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and a, a couple of things. So one, 
uh, you know, you say once you look at it logically, it's a no-brainer. Very few people do look at things logically, and, and that's that's where uh, a lot of the challenge is. And the other is that um, this is a podcast, so normally I'd be waving my <laughs> hands around and uh, scribbling equations on the uh, on, on, on the uh, for people to look at. Look, it's really obvious, can't you see? And I have to do all this verbally, which is it's going to be fun. So you you, you mentioned uh, the lime word. There's the lime cycle. So um, We've been producing lime. Uh, it's a basic chemical that has been used in, in building many other things uh, for many thousands of years. There's, there's lime in the pyramids. So, you know, we know how to do this uh, as a society. And lime, uh, the chemical name for it is calcium oxide, and it comes from limestone. This, this gets really complicated. You talk lime, limestone, aren't they the same thing? No. So limestone is calcium carbonate, and lime is calcium oxide. And essentially what you do, limestone, white cliffs of Dover, don't worry, I'm not going to pull them down. But anyway, that's what they're made of. About 10% of the surface mineral on the planet is limestone. So limestone, you take it and you heat it up. And you so heat I'm it thinking up. lime kilns, like there's that's things right. that we see yeah, exactly. on the edge of cliffs. Okay, yeah. that, That's right. So lime, lime kilns are what you use. And so it's, a, it's basically a, a great big oven. And... So what you're doing is you're heating up the calcium carbonate and you're heating it up so much that it breaks down and produces your calcium oxide, your lime. And as a byproduct, it's producing carbon dioxide. And this is where everyone goes, boo hiss, you're producing carbon dioxide. What on earth are you doing? But the point is that you can do this in a way that you um, produce the carbon dioxide from that process as pure. And as we talked about earlier, if you want to bury it in a hole in the ground and keep it away from the atmosphere forever, it needs to be pure. So we can do that. We can break down the calcium carbonate, drive off the CO2 and bury it underground. And you're going, but hang on, what have you done so far? You've burned lots of fuel to do this, and but you've ended up with lime. And you've ended up with a lime that is known as a zero carbon lime. So conventional ways, conventional ways of making lime result in that CO2 being released into the atmosphere and contributing to climate change. But the way that we've devised our system is that all of that CO2 that's generated is pure and that can be buried. So there's no emissions. So that's step one. We have produced lime, calcium oxide, but without producing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So now that was step one. Step two, we have that calcium oxide. And if we just leave it out on the ground, it will react with carbon dioxide from the air, just naturally on its own. So um, it takes a few weeks, a couple of months, but it will recarbonate. It will take the carbon dioxide out of the air and it will react with the calcium oxide, the lime on the ground, and it will form calcium carbonate again. And so what you have is a cycle. And in the first part of the cycle, you're breaking off the CO2 and burying it. And the second part, you're taking carbon dioxide out of the air. Now, so overall, when you add those two bits of the cycle together, what you're doing is you are taking carbon dioxide out of the air, a very low concentration, 400 parts per million, 0.04%, and you're generating pure carbon dioxide that can be buried. And that, in a nutshell, is what we're doing. So, so I've got this right. We don't need lime necessarily for much anymore, do we? I mean, that's the reason the lime kills stop working as lime kilns because we have other other resources because people used to do it for all sorts of things and they used to put that on their houses no, and stuff. No, so, we no, don't, no, so we don't need lime or is it is no, it we no, do no, need we, lime we we're just need, not using? 
We're just we not do using need lime. So, okay. so lime is still a big industrial uh, material. It's used in making steel. Uh, it's okay. Used in the cement industry. The cement industry itself has a, a similar sort of reaction where you're breaking down limestone as well. Uh, it's used in paper, sugar, uh, water treatment, uh, uh, soil stabilization, all sorts of things. So lime is a, a product that is widely used across uh, industry. I think the reason that those lime kilns in the side of hills have shut down is because we've come up with slightly more sophisticated <laughs> ways of doing, doing it, it. Than, than, than just carving out chunks of hills. Um, but um, essentially, uh, it, it is a, a big industry. And if, if you look at cement industry, as I say, the same reaction that the breaking down of calcium carbonate into calcium oxide and carbon dioxide takes place in the cement industry. That contributes roughly 8% of the emissions globally uh, of CO2 going into the atmosphere. So are you saying that your product is both carbon neutral in terms of, you know, any carbon you produce, you can then, it's pure and you can bury it, but it also has a carbon sequestration yes, element because absolutely. it's the lime. And then do you then use that lime to do something else? Does the lime That's then right. have another life cycle as part of the building industry or wh wherever we need it, lime? It, it can do. So, so the, it, it, this is where it gets a bit complicated, but basically we can produce this zero carbon lime, which is better than lots of pollution causing lime. Um, and uh, we can sell that into industry. And in being used in industry, it will absorb carbon dioxide from the air. Um, or we can use it directly to take CO2 out of the air. So there are multiple uses of uh, that zero carbon lime. So either you use it to replace existing lime um, use and reduce the emissions, or you use it specifically to take carbon dioxide out of the air. I can tell you, Amanda, I, 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 my memory of when Tim turned up um, to get onto the program, and I'm I'm a, a chemical physicist by by background, so this is kind of this is my territory. This is the sort of stuff I'm meant to know about, and I can remember thinking, I intellectually I can I can get it. Well, I just thought there must be some mistake. Here. <laughs> this why hasn't anybody thought of this before? It's you know because this is using a you know a, a sort of more than two thousand year old. Um, Technology. I mean, our, you know, the, the Romans were building all sorts of arches using using this kind of technology. Why? Why has nobody thought about this before? And after a while, as a person helping to run the the accelerator, you sort of think, oh, I can't let anybody in who's crazy. <laughs> so I better really look at this. And the more I looked at it, the more I realised, no, it's, it's just that nobody's thought to do this before. It's as simple as that. Sometimes, I think the best innovations are also the ones that are just right under your nose. They're, they're such an everyday experience that you've just not noticed it anymore. You take it for granted. The other thing, which is a much more technical thing, was what you were referring to, that you can take the lime and you can you can sell it into existing industries. And there, there are other greenhouse gas removal businesses that are out there. There's, there's actually not that many of them globally, but you know, literally two handfuls, and you'd have all of them. Um, and they have got technologies which only take CO2 out of the atmosphere, and that's it. They don't have any capacity for creating another product. Now, why is that important? So when you're a young company, you're trying to make your way in the commercial world, if you're just removing CO2 from the atmosphere, you've got to ask yourself, Who's going to pay for that? And when Tim started, the answer was 
nobody. <laughs> so, but then if you're saying, well, actually, I can I can feed this into other um, industrial channels, and they will pay me for this. There will be a premium that they will they will pay me for this. That means what you've done is you've reduced the cost of 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 greenhouse gas removal. And I still feel that as as a guiding principle for anybody who's got a, a startup that's really pushing. Uh, trying to open doors to markets that do not yet exist, the best of them will always be able to make money um, out of existing value chains, out of existing markets, whilst also pushing that door open. So um, yeah, that was in the end. That was what we took. We took Tim and his bananas idea. Bananas, or is it um, a number idea? I think I think it's counterintuitive, and I think this is um, one of the the, the issues. So the, the first step of the process actually generates CO2. And this is a real kind of counterintuitive thing. It uses natural gas as a fossil fuel to drive the put. That's counterintuitive. And um, I think that um, I've, I've got a, an approach to um, looking at problems, which is that you can only solve an intractable problem with a paradox. And uh, the, the reasoning goes like this. If you have an intractable problem, uh, then it isn't one that can be solved in a straightforward way. If it could be solved in a straightforward way, it wouldn't be an intractable problem. So if you have an intractable problem, there may not be any solution at all. It may be completely insolvable. But if there is a solution, it's one that's going to be a paradox. And so what you need to do is you need to look and accept paradoxes as you search for solutions. So when I'm looking at a process and I go, oh, and the first step does, and you go, that doesn't make sense. It's like, okay, well, can you use that? And, and that's kind of where it flows from. And I think that's also an explanation of why it is that um, when people look at it initially, they go, I don't know, that can't make sense. And, and then that's like their initial reaction. And it actually takes quite a lot of effort and proof to get over that cognitive um, view that people have had that that was their first view and they go, this doesn't make sense and I'm, I'm holding to that you actually have to overcome that and that's that's a challenge okay yeah, we're uncomfortable with that too aren't we as people we're uncomfortable mm -hmm. with things that we don't understand and that seem as you mm -hmm. say counterintuitive or create cognitive dissonance but, but but one thing i guess we have had to learn in the last few months of these extraordinary situations we've been in with with the pandemic is we have to look at things differently we've got mm -hmm. to stop you know business as usual just isn't isn't a thing anymore, yeah. how, whatever business we do and whatever way we work. So we've got to start looking at things from a completely different perspective. And, you know, what you've just said makes complete sense to me. I mean, without even without the diagram, I still understand the process. What I'm curious about is, would your ambition be to convert all of the, the, the businesses that are currently doing lime manufacturing and have them use your process? Is that where the trajectory yeah. is going? Yeah, so this is really interesting. We, we actually signed a, a MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, with um, a lime manufacturer uh, in uh, uh, on close to the Humber, and uh, they're called Singleton Birch, and they're the largest independent uh, lime manufacturer in the UK. And they um, are interested to work with us to develop the technology. We put in a, a grant proposal to build a plant that will do three thousand tons uh, a year. Uh, which is relatively small in the scheme of things. And uh, if we get that grant proposal, then um, by about this time next year, we should actually have a you know, plant up and uh, running or being close to running anyway. Um, and 
they are looking at this because they understand that their industry needs to transition from one that is emitting CO2 into the atmosphere to not emitting into the atmosphere. So at the moment, for every tonne of lime that you produce, you produce about a tonne of CO2 going up into the atmosphere. So that's the kind of short-term plan. But longer term, they'll go, okay, well, we've, we are now in partnership with um, our company. And uh, they, they might say, okay, let's see how we can license this out to other people. But there are all sorts of kind of barriers in the way of, of this because there's a lot of um, entrenched interests. There's a lot of kit that's already been built, which is expected to last for 30 or 40 years. And people are reluctant to go, well, actually, we're going to scrap that one, even though it's got 20 years of life left in it and build this new one. So there's lots of kind of institutional and societal barriers to actually developing this stuff. Actually, Amanda, there's been a really... Um, you know, you, you mentioned the pandemic has been a backdrop to every one of these um, podcasts. Um, but one of the f- phenomenal, I mean, it's not just fascinating, phenomenal things that's happened during lockdown is that um, businesses, especially tech businesses, have started to look at greenhouse gas removal technologies. Um, and they have put, large, I mean, you know, really large slabs of money down uh, as an investment in some of the companies that that we're talking about, the ones that just purely remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, the, the first one that um, did this was actually, was a, a not modest, I mean, they're, they're an important company, but a company called Stripe, which you've probably never heard of, founded by two young Irish gentlemen, they're out in the US. And they I think it's the billing system on eBay. If I got that wrong, Stripe, please forgive me. But that's how they make their money. And they wanted to go what's called net zero. So, so I think just describe what net zero means. So they run this, this company, and obviously it's 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 digital. So there's not huge amounts of emissions, but they do have emissions because of all the servers that are running, you know, all that stuff that they're doing. Um, that produces emissions because it's using up electricity and they want to go net zero. And they started looking at, well, how could we do that? And they came to the conclusion that they were going to have to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And you can make choices, right? You can, you, 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 you can do it in along the, 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 the sort of um, the routes that Tim uh, has been describing, which, which uh, is, uh, it's kind of an engineering approach, right? It's saying, uh, I, I do some rather concentrated process, produce stuff that's very avidly withdrawing CO2 from the atmosphere. And, and in Tim's case, you plug it into an existing value chain. But, you know, everybody will have noticed just before the pandemic shutdown, the lockdown, we had an election. It's a long time ago. It feels like it was forever ago, but it wasn't. It was, you know, seven months or something ago. No, more than that, nine months ago. Um, and there was a competition going on amongst the, the, the major parties for how much reforestation they would do. And it was exactly the same proposition. Airlines have been doing it, <laughs> not that they need it anymore, but you know, the, the, of planting trees because trees photosynthesize and they remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, so that's another approach to doing this. It's one that one has to treat it with great care because trees take a long time to grow and the emissions from your flight 
took a very short time to happen. Um, and how long a tree remains storing that CO2 is another issue. So there's a whole bunch of issues. But anyway, those things were going on in Stripe's mind. Should we just like spend money on building forests? And they decided, no, let's spend money with some of these companies that fund them in order to do this properly. And I think that's a really pungent and sort of insightful approach that these two young Irishmen took. And then it started and after that, there was a whole load of them kept on happening. And you know, then the big, the big companies, the, the Microsofts and so on, started to talk about it as well. So it may be that the the, 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 the impetus to doing this stuff will actually come from the thing that we're doing now. You know, we're talking over a commercial package <laughs> that allows us to do stuff over the internet, which is also running on servers, and they will also want to go carbon neutral, mm -hmm. they want to go net zero. So the pandemic has, for some reason, has really put us into interesting times when it comes to this, you know, drive for net zero, greenhouse gas removal, how you do it. I think it's really interesting, and I think there's a, an enormous role that uh, companies like Stripe and Microsoft can play uh, in seeding this. But in order for this to actually work at proper scale, you, you're going to need to get governments involved. You're going to need to get the regulatory framework, the incentives to make this happen, the, 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 the carrots to make it happen, and the sticks to stop people emitting. And that really is the responsibility of government. But it, there, there is good news there. Um, uh, last year, um, the UK government was the first major economy to sign up to net zero, saying that they would basically eliminate their contribution to climate change by 2050. And um, if you look across um, the, the G7 countries, um, um, large industrial um, uh, economies, all of them, with the very obvious exception of uh, the United States of America, have pledged to basically eliminate their CO2 emissions by 2050. Um, and um, the, the US, um, obviously, with uh, the current uh, president, isn't in that position. But uh, should Joe Biden be elected president, it's part of their platform. So we can see that um, the, the G7 countries, which contribute uh, about half of the emissions to the atmosphere um, are committed to that. And I think that's a very hopeful sign. Uh, the UK is going to be hosting uh, the G7 uh, next year, um, ahead of the, the, the big climate summit, the COP26, uh, that will take place in Glasgow towards the end of next year. So I think there's a, should Joe Biden be elected, I think that you would, I would be surprised if the communique out of the G7 wasn't a G7-wide commitment to net zero. And then there's other good signs as well. Uh, China, which obviously has uh, come later to um, uh, becoming an industrialized economy, um, they have now pledged to reach carbon neutrality by 2060, which is a huge step forward. This is like in, in climate terms, this is probably the, the biggest piece of news all year. Mm. Uh, but it's something that really doesn't get the attention that it should. Yeah. But it, once you've got that impetus, that need to get to net zero, you have to have incentives to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. If you put anything into the air to get to net zero, you've got to take the same amount out. Mm. And without incentives, it won't happen. So we need to make sure we get those incentives right and they drive the correct behaviour 
are not inappropriate behaviour, which is the danger with incentives. Yeah, and we can't leave it all to the private sector and we can't leave it all to individual organisations or however big they are, even if they're the Microsofts of this world saying, we're going to take this action, we need government and a regulatory framework, as you say. You know, and I guess a date warning, you know, this podcast is being recorded before the American elections. (laughs) So we've all got our fingers crossed here that by the time it goes out, that um, the new world will be one in which Joe Biden is talking sense in the White House around climate change, among other things. Um, yeah, and we've got a thumbs up from producer. Tim, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I haven't had to use my geekometer once because for a complete non-scientist, I think I've followed virtually every word. But for those of you who haven't followed every word, do watch the TED Talk because it does have pictures. Um, and do visit the website because we'll put the fantastic origin pictures up. What we didn't get time to talk about, sadly, is all the work that you're doing in Oxford. So we're probably just going to have to have you back on another podcast if that's okay. <laughs> and have another, yeah, absolutely. Have another intellectual gallop through an early morning. Thank you so much for 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 being a guest. It's been terrific, hasn't it, Richard? Yeah, it's been. It's 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 always fun having debates with Tim, and I, I really would genuinely love to do another one with Tim and some of my other colleagues, um, not just at Oxford and Imperial, but at other parts of the country as well. There's a whole crew of us that are spending a lot of time arguing and debating how you how you do this stuff, and I think. I hope people will be interested, actually, it's because it's difficult stuff to talk about, but it does need talking about. Yeah, well, I think we've all learned that we now we need not to be afraid of the difficult stuff now, and we need to yeah. all step up together. So, Tim, huge thanks to you for joining us and making the thank time. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, thanks, Richard. And a thank you thanks, to Richard. our listeners for um, um, joining us for another episode of Accelerating to a Better Future. You can catch up on other podcasts in this series by visiting the Grantham Institute website or the Planet Pod website. Um, And do download us on your favourite podcast app and remember to rate and review the programme. So thanks for listening and goodbye. Accelerating to a Better Future is a Planet Pod production, co-hosted by Amanda Carpenter and Richard Templer. Our thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and the team at Imperial College London.